0: House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Joining us is Gregory A. Fonnier, and we're going to talk about his book Terror in Hypsilanti*. It's the John Norman Collins Unmasked book. Thank you for being here, Greg.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Wow. So this is quite a story. So Greg, what got you into this story um, enough to write a book?
1: Uh, It's a very personal story with me. I lived a block up the street from John Collins and had several uh, interactions with him that were uh, negative interactions, but I didn't know his name, I didn't uh, know him uh, really. And then walking home from classes at Eastern Michigan University one afternoon, uh, his house uh, where he rented a room uh, was uh, cordoned off, surrounded by half a dozen uh, uh, police cars and a crowd of about 50 people. And, you know, so obviously I knew something was uh, happening. And, uh, well, when I got there, I said, well, you know, uh, what's what's happening? And Somebody told me the guy who's killed all those girls was just arrested in that house. So that was my first uh, uh, link uh, between him, me, and who he was. Uh, and in the evening papers, it was announced, uh, uh, his name was announced, John Norman Collins, captured, the suspected killer, of blah, blah. And uh, so, of course, that left a big impression on me. And then uh, a book came out called The Michigan Murders five years later, and it changed the names of the victims. It, it uh, masked the killer's name and uh, novelized a story, a very free uh, novelization of, uh, of a story. And so as years went on, people were more and more confused about, well, what really happened? And, and uh, it was it this place or that place? Uh, So when I retired uh, in 2009, um, I I wrote a a book uh, called Zug Island. And then for my second project, I thought, well, there's a great story that happened just down the street from me that has never been told in a factual way. So I then and there decided to write a nonfiction treatment of his story, and it's done very well.
0: I'm curious to know how your story expands on that novel, because I read that novel this week, and the whole time, I read it before years ago, but just to refresh myself, and I was curious reading it, I noticed a lot of things seem to be changed, of course, the killer's name, but obviously, as you were saying, it's fictionalized, so how does your book differ from it in that sense?
1: Well, I I can say that, First of all, it uh, uh, is a story that I'm uniquely uh, able to tell. Uh, I under, understood the ca- campus culture 50 mm-hmm. years ago. I lived a block up the street. We knew many of the same people. I did not know uh, any of the victims personally, but uh, when I became a teacher in Ypsilanti, I would have had one of the the victims as a uh, an English student, and uh, I had some of her friends, and people in, in town really didn't talk about it at all for, you know, almost 50 years. It was uh, you know kind of the town's hidden secret, and uh, so I started writing the book and contacting people, and people who I had known through my Aflanti experience started coming forward. And it, it just, uh, the story started telling itself. And the, the broad strokes of, of the Michigan Murders uh, book covers the Karen Sue Beineman case uh, mainly. And mm-hmm. I tried to give more details about the six other murders, and much of that information had never been published before. And not in the Michigan murders, as well, so I tried to give a rounder portrait, and I also did not want to do anything that was lurid uh, yeah. or uh, uh, make things up about uh, the victims because there was not a lot of quality information uh, the the parents of of the victims didn't want to talk and uh, Edward Keyes, and, and the Michigan murders author uh, really did not talk to anybody that uh, uh, was related to the victims and essentially they went by what was in the newspapers and what the police uh, and authorities uh, told him mm-hmm. so I, I have a rounder portrayal of it, 50 years of hindsight mm-hmm. and a an understanding of campus culture and in addition to that uh, three of His professors, he he was an English major, uh, and I am and was an English major, Uh, those three professors I also had, and they came forward with information. So uh, and I I could go on. Uh, The second part of the book is about the court case, and a lot of that uh, was in Keyes' book too, although there were liberties taken with uh, that story. Uh, I got all of my information from newspaper accounts and uh, uh, legal government documents. Uh, I had the Freedom uh, of Information Act uh, request on uh, thousands of pages of prison and uh, state police documents, Uh, but it's really the third part of my book that is uh, totally new, and that's about John Collins's years in prison and there's not much about him through the first two thirds of the book because he didn't talk at all uh, on, on lawyer's orders uh, during his court case and of course we didn't know who he was uh, while he was killing all of these uh, girls but uh, uh, the prison part of the book uh, he starts uh, reaching out to the press and uh, trying to create a, an alibi uh, and a justification and uh, to make uh, uh, people feel that he is the victim, not mm-hmm. the girls he killed. And uh, all of those things uh, uh, were not in that original book. So, uh, uh, you know, and I'm very proud of that part.
0: Well, I appreciate you expanding on that. And I was curious, too, I know that in the original trial, most of the evidence was considered circumstantial evidence, which is apparently how he manages to claim that you know he's the victim in all this. But uh, Sheriff Douglas Harvey, in a recent interview, said that there were uh, some DNA testing going on and that DNA belonging to Collins had been found on clothing belonging to one of the victims or something like that. Could you explain what's well, actually yeah, going on?
1: He, he uh, would know more about that than I would. Uh, John uh, never willingly gave up his DNA because he said, "Oh, the government, uh, the police—they'll uh, try to entrap me somehow and and find me guilty when I'm not, and one thing or another." Uh, in 2002, though, uh, in Michigan, all of the uh, uh, you know prison inmates had to give up a cheek swab and get the the DNA. And he, uh, Sheriff Harvey, uh, seems to think uh, that the, one of the later murders, Alice Callum or Cologne, I'm not sure, I think it's Callum, um, he had picked her up uh, at a dance and whatnot, and uh, uh, she was on his motorcycle, and according to Doug, uh, he must have reached back and grabbed her on the thigh while they were driving, and some of his sweat and epithelials uh, were found on her pantyhose. I, I can't co- collaborate, uh, corroborate that mm-hmm. uh, myself, but uh, you know he's more in a position to know than I am. Now, I'll and- defer to his judgment on that.
0: Yeah, and and on that note, I had a question, Al and I were discussing this before you came on. The story that he told about the psychic Peter Herkos, can you expand on that and tell us how much of that is actually true?
1: Most of the Herkos stuff is true, and uh, uh, the reason I can say that confidently is that Peter was a uh, publicity hound. He was a celebrity psychic. Mm-hmm. And uh, so everywhere he went, everything he did while he was in Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor, uh, he had the press following him around. And so, uh, you know, all of the, the information that we have about Peter is, um, is accurate. And the one very amazing thing. Uh, that Peter said, uh, he went into the basement where Karen Sue Beineman was murdered, and he used to do the, I forget what he called it, but vibrations, you know, the, the things, uh, inanimate objects, would give off a certain aura uh, or a vibration. So he would go down in the basement and he'd feel on the floor and look all, you know, what over. Anyway, he uh, had a prediction that uh, when the guy, uh, the murderer was killed, that he would uh, be a foreigner, he would have Canadian money in his pocket, and that there was a makeshift ladder laying on the floor somewhere in, in, in his vision. And as it turned out, when Sheriff Harvey and, and the rest of the, the police the investigators went down in that basement, uh, they found a ladder laying along the wall, and when Collins was arrested, they discovered he was born in Canada, and he did have some Canadian money in his pocket, probably because he was thinking of... You know, escaping uh, across the Ambassador Bridge uh, into Windsor as the only reason I would think that he would have Canadian money in his pocket. But uh, uh, Sheriff Harvey said, you know, I'm very skeptical, but when he said those three things, the hair stood up on the back of my neck. And, uh, uh, but Peter Hercos, in further discovery, we found out that he had secretly come into town. He had a, a um, a, a private investigator do a lot of his uh, snooping around for him and he uh, was able to glean that information so uh, there's uh, no psychic power there
0: uh-huh. and as,
1: a, as a footnote to all of this uh, and I've never told anybody this before uh, Peter Herkos' widow lives rather close to me probably within 30 miles and uh, she got in touch with me, and I thought, oh, she's going to be upset, uh, give me a hard time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I, I tried to tell tell it like it was, and uh, about uh, Peter being a fraud and so on. And she wanted me to ghostwrite her story about her life with Peter, and she was his shill in his. Uh, Hollywood act and his uh, uh, Las Vegas act. Very pretty, blonde girl, uh, very buxom distraction, which is what a shill does. And, uh, and she asked me if I would write his story and fulfill the final chapter of his prophecy. Hmm. And I said, uh, no, I backed off of that one. I don't <laughs> Uh, I don't do, uh, uh, you know, uh, ghostwriting and, and so on. So, uh, mm-hmm. And she says, well, I really like your style. And I said, I'm surprised because, you know, I was critical of your husband. And she says, well, it's not being critical when you tell the truth. So uh-huh. I, uh, yeah, I took that as a great uh, compliment.
0: Wasn't he also uh, involved in the Lindbergh kidnapping case?
1: No, uh, he was involved oh, in Boston Strangler. The, uh, the Boston Strangler. That's, right. That's He right. self-involved. Uh, uh, was self-involved. Uh, nobody asked him to come to Boston, but his career was on the skids uh, in the '60s. Celebrity uh, psychics were all the rage on uh, Johnny Carson and uh, the Mike Douglas show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know those types of. Uh, shows, Merv Griffin, and, uh, but after a while, it, it was getting old, and he wasn't getting the bookings anymore, and uh, so he uh, went to Boston, interjected himself in the case, and got himself arrested by the Boston police, and they were going to press charges if he didn't get out of town immediately. Mm-hmm. They did not want an amateur in there messing up their investigation. And what really uh, sealed it for the police was when Hercos impersonated a Boston police detective and started harassing one of the witnesses uh, of the, the, the Boston Strangler uh, case. I don't know what the man witnessed. He didn't witness any uh, of the killings, but uh, he was somehow connected to it and Peter Herkos just leaned on him real, real hard. But what Herkos didn't know was this man was emotionally disturbed, suffered from uh, severe depression, and he had to be hospitalized after Peter Herkos tried to scare him into giving him information. So Hercos was arrested, and, uh, and, and I already told the other part of the story. You get out of town or we're pressing charges. And he couldn't get out of town fast enough.
0: Wow. Well, I really appreciate you expanding on that because now it all makes sense. <laughs> um, but I also wanted to ask you, there's uh, theories that Collins was involved in murders in California as well. Could you talk about that and what evidence there is to indicate he may be responsible for those crimes?
1: Well, one in particular, uh, he was suspected of possibly three. Uh, he was left Ypsilanti. The police are starting to close in a little too much on him. And in addition to being a, uh, a killer uh, and a, uh, a butcher, really, uh, he was a compulsive thief. And him and his buddy, uh, roommate, uh, had been out uh, stealing credit cards and wallets and breaking into houses and cars and so on. Well, the police were starting to close in on him. So uh, he and his friend fraudulently rented a trailer with a check that they had stolen from one of the apartments that they broke into.
0: That's and right.
1: paid rental. Uh, so it was a fraudulent check, and they took the trailer out to Salinas. Andy Manuel, Collins' friend, uh, his his grandparents lived uh, in Salinas, so they went out and parked the trailer in the alley for free uh, in back of his grandfather's house, and they were only there for, well, it was under a week, four or five days at the very most, and... uh, a young 17 year old woman uh, called Roxy Phillips uh, was found dead, uh, cut up, and thrown in uh, Pescadero Canyon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, 10 miles away, 50 miles away from Salinas. And. Uh, There was evidence, uh, physical evidence, linking Collins to the crime, and and real quickly one of the uh, California detectives working the case and and who found the body uh, developed a real bad case of poison oak. And he thought, well, I wonder if the killer happened to have poison oak, too. So uh, a detective went around within a five-mile radius, whatever, uh, and asked different doctors uh, if anybody treated somebody uh, for poison oak recently uh, from Michigan. And lo and behold, one of the doctors said yes, and they had his name, uh, you know, John Collins, uh, or he may have given a, a false name, that part I'm not sure of. But uh, uh, Collins panicked. He took the car to uh, a a Pontiac dealer, had the trailer hitch taken off. They deserted the trailer, and him and uh, Andy Manuel went back to Michigan. And a trip that was supposed to take three weeks to a month was about a 10-day trip. And, uh, the landlady had not rent it, rented, uh, uh, the rooms out or anything, so they just moved right back into their old rooms and hid out there. When the body was found, there, she, uh, Roxy had on a red print dress, a little, uh, floral print, and, uh, with a matching belt. They found her nude body with this belt around her neck and she had been strangled to death back in Michigan now Collins is under suspicion for the murder of Karen Subinum, and his car is impounded they take it apart and they take the seats out and they find on the, the, the seat rail a piece of fabric red fabric with the same floral print the same warp and weave in the fabric, 100 percent identical. And that linked Collins with direct physical evidence mm-hmm. for the California murder. He, uh, that was a slam dunk case out in California, And there were two witnesses that saw her in his car.
0: Well, he had a problem with that. Now, that's how he came uh, to the attention of authorities, right? It was witnesses who saw him with the victims, wasn't he seen with at least three or four of the victims?
1: You know, in, in uh, Michigan, one that I, I'm sure of. Uh, well, actually, the first one, the Pleasure uh, of murder. Uh, yes, he had been seen at Silver Lake with her uh, and uh, Alice. Callum, he had been seen with her, but uh, I I was able to uh, pinpoint uh, that he had been seen or uh, was known to have been with each of the seven victims. And police will tell you, you know, uh, they don't believe when it comes to crime. That there's anything uh, uh, real about coincidence, yeah. usually it's cover-up. But here we have the coincidence of him being able to of Collins being able to place him with all seven of the victims. Now I would say that goes way way beyond coincidence. Again, it's circumstantial, but you can be convicted on circumstantial evidence oh yeah and if there's the weight of it and it's compelling enough
0: well and that brings up another point too how does he justify claiming that he's the victim in this case or that he's somehow innocent when they're I mean what are the odds that somebody would be connected to seven of the victims but didn't kill them
1: that's what narcissists do that's all I can answer uh that one and and uh, uh he can't take any personal responsibility for anything. everyone is a liar but him mm-hmm. and uh he really over the years hasn't been very effective at convincing people of that he's <laughs> his own enemy,
0: yeah. Yeah, well, he also, uh, didn't he do some local uh, interview for a local television station shortly after he was convicted in the 80s Uh, or something? It was
1: about, oh, geez, I'd say 10 years later. Mm -hmm. It might even be, uh, about 10 years later, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wanted to set up almost like a kangaroo court where he could act as his own lawyer, because he wasn't allowed to speak during the trial, yeah. so here he wanted to speak as his own lawyer uh, and uh, question the prosecutor, question uh, Sheriff Harvey, uh, other people connected uh, with his conviction, and then a lot of uh, a number of his uh, supporters were out in the live audience. Mm-hmm. Now Collins is doing this on a remote from. Marquette Prison in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan uh, with the Detroit station. So they sent one of their uh, uh, reporters, Marilyn Turner, and uh, she interviewed him. And he hadn't really been around, uh, you know, an attractive woman for a long time, in one thing or, or another, you know, fill in the blanks. So, uh, she goes up to interview him in prison, and you can tell that he's just very taken with her. And she, in a very masterful way, made him relax and, you know, tell his story. And, you know, again, it's all lies. Yeah. Uh, and then she asks him, John, do you love your mother? And he lost it. He just he couldn't talk. It's, it's really about the only time he hasn't been able to talk. She would hit him right where he lives. And he got a little bit weepy. And uh, yeah, it was, I, I love my mom. But he had, if he did, it was a love hate relas- relationship with her.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because the story that I've heard is that his mother was a prostitute. And that
1: well, she that's had, Sheriff Harvey again. Yeah, that's uh, what I was going
0: to say. That's a story I heard that he had that John had caught his mother with a trick, and that that has been cited as some kind of uh, traumatic experience that could have caused this or whatever. So you're you're throwing water on that, saying that it may not well, be true. Well,
1: yeah, you know, yes and no. I th- I think the word prostitute uh, is uh, is where it all falls apart for me. Uh, because I asked Doug, and we've become friends uh, since it uh, took five years to write this book. He and I got together quite a few times. Hmm. And uh, he made that uh, pronouncement at a Kiwanis meeting in Ann Arbor. And I asked him, I said, well, did you have any cooperation? Was there any physical evidence, you know, any evidence, eyewitness, whatever? And he said no. Hmm. But here's the the deal with his mother. Uh, She may not have been the best mom. She was a single mom living in a very small, basically Catholic community. She sent her kids to Catholic school, but she never went to church, never went to any school events, never went to any of his sporting events, and he lettered in three sports in high school. She was a waitress, and she had to pay a mortgage and take care of three kids, and she worked very hard. But she was a single mom, and in that era, you know, people would gossip. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think a lot of uh, uh, that talk was gossip. She's a single woman, she's able to date who she wants to. Uh, there had been a few men in her life uh, b- besides her two husbands. Uh, but a prostitute, uh, no. Uh, a, a lonely uh, single mom, I would say yes to that. And I did talk to one of John's high school friends who came home with him one day early from school. The boiler in the school broke down. It was winter and they sent all the kids home. So John says, come on home and we can lift some weights in my basement. So they go to the house and as they are going in the back door and down the stairs, this person said that he looked off to the left through the kitchen and into the living room and John's mother was there on the couch making out with some guy. Mm There was, there was nothing, I mean, it wasn't, they were naked, it was nothing like that. But just, you know.
0: Just normal stuff.
1: Time with, with someone. And uh, you can imagine that, you know, that kid probably told somebody who told somebody else and then it got in the church uh, uh, rumor mill and uh, and then it just grew from there. But uh, no, I, I would not call her a prostitute, nor would I, I say that about his uh, older sister either. Mm-hmm. His, his older sister, her problem was not a problem, uh, she liked older men. So when she was, you know, a, a late teen, 17, 18, 19 years old, she was going out with guy, guys in their mid 20s. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, mom and uh, and daughter were considered uh, flamboyant, notorious people, and they both dressed to the nines. They always had their hair done; looked like they spent a lot of time at the hairdresser. Uh, they wore costume jewelry, uh, and you know, just just did not fit the mold of uh, of, of what people thought. Uh, a mother should be
0: well doesn't that uh, fall into the ultimate problem that people have trying to explain why these people do these kinds of things they want some sort of easy answer like that well his mother was a prostitute and he was traumatized and things because
1: yeah I've he read a lot his, of strange things about, about, a bunch yeah. of women yeah that, that's that's basically what most people will look uh, surmise uh, he hated his mother but And I'm not going to deny that he had very mixed and hard feelings about her from other people I know who know uh, Collins and had seen him interact with his mother. Uh, And, you know, he was frustrated with her. I think uh, uh, he felt that she was a little too flirtatious. And uh, he didn't particularly like the way she dressed. Believe it or not, uh, uh, Collins was a conservative Catholic. And uh, so I, I think he had probably been embarrassed by his mother, but I think what really made him flip, uh, in my uh, uh, humble opinion, because I'm not a psychologist, he had a girlfriend in high school, and it was uh, fairly steady, but you know, off again, on again, went through the high school years. He went to Central Michigan and I, I don't know, she probably went to Wayne State or somebody, but uh, she went to a different school. They drifted apart, and Collins really missed her a, a lot, and uh, he came uh, uh, home on a weekend uh, or the Christmas holiday or something like that and asked her to go out and to see a movie. Uh, and then when they got together, he didn't take her to a movie. He went to Gross Point, parked in a real dark place up uh, on the uh uh, shore of uh, uh, the Detroit River or maybe it was the uh, Lake St. Clair River. Uh, I don't remember which, but uh, and, and he wanted her to go out to the, a pier. he sit on the pier and talk. And he, she said, I thought we were going to a movie. No, I, I don't want to go out there. What's on your mind? So they had to talk. And he said, I just want to know if, if we could You know, if you still have feelings for me and if maybe we could, uh, you know, try to get together again. And she told him no. I think that was a rejection that may have snapped, something may have snapped for Collins. Uh, I I believe he grew up feeling like he was the unwanted third child uh, because the mother, uh, you know, her second child, Uh, was a girl and a female. Uh, and, uh, basically that was her alter ego. And growing up, they spent a lot of time together and got a lot of the attention. And John, uh, felt neglected. And then when his high school girlfriend neglected him, I believe that he got, uh, uh, just something snapped inside of him then, uh, flashing uh, back uh, into uh, Ipsilanti and the first victim, uh, when Mary Flesher rejected him, that might have been more than he could stand. And I, there was uh, such rage that he wreaked upon her body that uh, it's even difficult to describe uh, what he did to her.
0: Sounds like your book is uh, definitely something we should read because already in this conversation you've cleared up quite a bit of confusion for me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh, I have a, uh, I sold an option to a, a Toronto media company. Uh, they're trying to come up with uh, a short uh, trailer and uh, hopefully uh, sell it as a movie project. And uh, uh, I hope they do. Uh, mm, that's exciting.
0: Um, now, do you have a website?
1: Yes, I do. Uh, Gregory A. Fournier. dot com, and that's my author site. And I have a blog that's got about four hundred and twenty five uh, posts on it about different things I write and and history. I, I'm a regional author. I live in California, but I'm a Michigan boy, and uh, I write about uh, Detroit topics. And my uh, blog is Fornology. Uh, uh, I dropped the U out of my name. Fornology, dot com And that is, uh, you know, my main marketing tool as well. Great. And I have a book coming out here. Uh, uh, I'm two weeks from uh, sending it to the publisher on Detroit's Purple Gang during the 20s and 30s. A gang refuted to killed over 500 people in their 10-year reign of terror. So wow. uh, my, my topics are a bit dark, but uh, uh, they do very well. Great.
0: Well, we'll have your book up on our website as well as your website link, so people can uh, do one click, and uh, we recommend the book. Terror in Ypsilanti, John Norman Collins, Unmasked, and our guest has been the author, Gregory A. Faunier. Thanks for being here, Greg. Uh,
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or show, go to www.houseofmystery.com
1: has been completed. the end by George he's got it. It is the end. How see you She to me. I'll be back. This has been a production of something
0: with media.